I can't believe I'm here at the 18th episode of Penned. It's been several years of learning how to tell stories by opening up this platform to the storytellers and giving them the space to open up the most private corners of their lives. Penned has been a journey about discovering my own voice and growing from each episode I write and produce, working to improve on things each time. It's also been my after-work release, coping mechanism, creative outlet. I'm so proud of the show and what it's become after these last few years. I started Penn to answer the question of why do people write to incarcerated folks, people they don't even know. I think each episode has answered the question in a different way, but has also helped to bring humanity back into the conversation and hopefully spark some change in the way the incarcerated are viewed by society. Please continue to send me your stories, thoughts, and ideas. I really do read every email or DM that is sent my way. As you all know, I decided to drag my millennial ass over to TikTok for pen to research purposes only. Okay, so maybe I sit there for way too long, scrolling through DIY home project tutorials, dance videos, and weird viral trends, but nonetheless, it's been a great platform to connect with the prison wife community. I met Andrea on that platform, and we messaged back and forth a few times before scheduling a call. Of course, her story is different from the others, because being a prison wife or even a pen pal is not a one-size-fits-all. Andrea is really connected into the criminal justice community. She not only works for a law firm, but also plugs herself into the goings-on of the prison where her partner is currently incarcerated. Because of that, she's able to give us some insight on the flaws of the justice system through her and her partner's direct experiences. I'm Christina Hansen, and this is Penn. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just kind of start out from from the beginning. So you are (laughs) part of the prison wife community that Jade, my last guest, is also a part of. So it means you are currently dating somebody who is incarcerated. Yes, correct. How did you meet him? So my boyfriend, his name is Benjamin. We have known each other since middle school. So he likes to tell people we went to different middle schools together. <laughs> so he went to a different middle school, but we, you know, all the middle school activities, we only had like three middle schools. So we grew up together. Then we eventually went to the same high school together. And then it was about two years after high school that he went into prison. And so we hadn't talked in 10 years. And then finally, I would always see like his sister out and about in our hometown and just be like, tell Benjamin, I said, hi, I love him. Like I miss him because we were such good friends growing up. And then one day his mom texted or messaged me on Facebook and was like, your name popped up. And I told Benjamin, you know, your name popped up on Facebook and he wants to know if he can have your number to call you. And I was like, Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. And I just thought we were going to, you know, spend that 20 minutes on the phone and catch up. And then next thing I know, he was like, when can I call you back? And I was like, literally anytime. Like I had just missed him so much that I didn't even, I didn't even realize I missed him that much, you know, just even as a friend. So were there feelings in high school then? And all of a sudden it just kind of came bubbling up, you know, afterwards. And as you became adults and all that stuff. And was that always there? Yeah, no, we, I always had the biggest crush on him, like probably ever since I met him. And I tell him all the time, like, if I could go back and tell 13 year old Andrea that like, we've been together for almost six years and we're going to like get married and have kids and a family and grow old together. Like, I don't even know what she would do. She would probably just go 
that I don't even know. She would be so <laughs> like, she would be so insanely happy. She would probably not even believe me, but yeah. And then I had like, once I kind of became more public with it, I even had a friend reach out to me from middle school and she was like, Oh my God, like you had the biggest crush on him growing up. I can't believe like the 180, the 360, however you want to see it, that like how life just like turned out and you guys ended up together. Well, clearly it was meant to be. What is he currently incarcerated for? So he is incarcerated for first degree robbery. Long story short, him and three other guys, when Benjamin was 19, decided to, I always say he they decided to rob our local drug dealer because we lived in a pretty little big town. And so it was kind of our, I say our, but I never interacted with him, but everybody knew him as, you know, our drug dealer and dealing weed or probably other drugs. Everybody knows him mostly for weed. And so him and three other guys decided that they were going to go rob him of the pounds on pounds of weed that he had. And it just went wrong. I mean, it was wrong in the first place, but (laughs) you know what I mean? Like it did not turn out. It was, it was not a successful robbery. And so he got what is called a mandatory minimum. So he got sentenced to 25 years, but he has to do at least 70% of that 25 years, which is 17 and a half years before he can even see the parole board. Wow. That's, that's a long time. And how far into his sentence is he currently? He is 14 years. So just a few more years to go. And then hopefully, because he's in Iowa, I'm in Colorado now. So hopefully we can start paperwork here in a couple of years and get him paroled out here. That's the plan. Wow. The countdown begins. <laughs> the countdown begins. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, out of 17 and a half years, we're kind of in the home stretch now. So it feels good that we got things that we can goals to set and things to work on and work towards instead of just being, you know, 10 years in and we're like, okay, we still have 17 or seven years to go, you know? So we're kind of getting down to the nitty gritty of it. So, I mean, what does that look like for you guys? Like what are, you know, you mentioned family having, you know, starting a family, having kids, getting married, all that fun stuff. I mean, that's, that's, I would imagine what is keeping you guys going and, you know, three years is a long time still. And I'm sure you're still, you have, you're dealing with the struggles of not being able to see him as he's in a different state and incarcerated there and not always being able to talk to him just because of how the, the, the system works. You know, you can't always have access to the phones or videos, you know, so I would imagine that, you know, your, your goals are the one thing that's probably at times really keeping this held together, right? Absolutely. And I mean, we have, I mean, we've talked about so many different things. Like we want kids right away. We don't want kids right away because we want to just enjoy each other's company. Like, I mean, 17 and a half years in prison. I mean, I would like to say he's not as, I I definitely think he's not as institutionalized as he could be, but there's definitely going to be that factor that like he's coming out into the world where He hasn't been since he was 19 years old. And right now we're both 34. So here in a few years, we're going to be 37, 38 years old. And, you know, we know we have a lot to work on. We've talked about doing like counseling. He, you know, him doing separate counseling, us doing couples counseling, because we know it's going to be a struggle, but I don't think it's anything that we can't achieve or work on 
you know, what keeps us going is, yeah, definitely that. And just knowing that, like, luckily for us, that a lot of people don't get, we're very fortunate that we have like a release date, you know, like we know that this is going to come to an end and it's not going to be forever. So that's definitely helping drive, you know, our relationship. Right, right. You know, it's good that you both recognize that there's still going to be those struggles. You know, 17 years is a long time to spend really in in any one place. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But you think about spending that, especially those formative years, you know, he was 19 when he went in and those are such formative years and there's things that issues that I'm sure might not bubble up until later, but it's good that you guys have the awareness to know that it's not going to be easy, but you're both willing to put in that work because you love each other. And, and, you know, and, and also having that support system for him. I can't imagine what that must be like, like I said, going in and spending 17 years of your adult life, your, your young adult life in prison. And then, you know, not necessarily knowing how society works because you're not in our, our quote, normal society at this point. Right. And, you know, like a lot of his growing up is from TV that he gets to watch or like new people that come into prison, they kind of give him the lowdown of like how things work. You know, I think he was pretty shocked when he realized that like big, extra large, white baggy shirts and baggy pants weren't, you know, like <laughs> the, the style of choice anymore for, for guys like it was when he was 19 and went into prison. He's like, wait, what? Skinny jeans? Like form-fitting jeans? What? You know, like so much, you know, has changed on the outside world. I just can't wait for him to like experience life. And like, I'm just super stoked to watch that, you know, like see the world through like fresh eyes and in a sense, you know? Yeah. I hope that like through him, I realized the things that I take for granted or took for granted, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting perspective. As you were saying, you know, how as you were just explaining, you know, him being kind of blown away by the style of men's clothing, I was just thinking like, what about technology? Like we have our information is in the palm of our hand and our iPhones. And like, I mean, 17 years ago, we didn't have that. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, he's been into sports. So a lot of times on like sports center and stuff, they'll show like tweets from basketball players or Instagram posts, you know, they'll throw that up on the screen. So he's familiar kind of with like social media and some technology. I remember him probably a year before we got together. So probably like six or seven years ago, his grandpa passed away and he was fortunate enough to um, be able to get a furlough and go attend his grandpa's funeral. But I remember him telling me about the first time he held and like experienced an iPhone. He was like, what? I can just like Google anything. Like I can search anything from this phone or like I can FaceTime somebody. Like he FaceTimed some family that wasn't at the funeral. And he was just like, I was so blown away of like, I had all this access, you know, at the, at my fingertips. And I can't even imagine what that like felt like for, for him. That's wild. You know what I mean? Because like for us, I feel like we, we gradually just came into like iPhones and FaceTime and all this technology. Like it wasn't ever anything like where we didn't have it and then we had it, but it wasn't like boom, boom for us. Like it was for him. It was like, we gradually learned about it, you know? So 
because I think I told you before when we talked, like when he was out the first or the last cell phone that he had was a Motorola, like razor flip phone. And so like you had to watch your texting and you had to watch your calls and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And now we have unlimited data plans and we could just talk forever. Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's wild when you think about that. Like it's just, you know, so we follow each other on Instagram and that's how you got a hold of me. And, you know, which is awesome. Kind of segue from social media and technology into, into my next question. But I've been following kind of the story that's been going on and I'm hoping that you could help shed some light on it because you were sharing this with me. But it sounds like Benjamin is dealing with some things in prison right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious if you're comfortable talking about and telling the story about what he is currently going through. Yeah, definitely. On November 11th, he went to the hole, which is like lock up, solitary, some people call it the shoe, like it exchangeable vocabulary for it. But he went to the hole and then Friday morning I had got like a text from some of my other like prison girlfriends in there and they were like, have you talked to Benjamin? And I was like, no, but I saw our video visit got canceled and stuff. I was like, are they on lockdown or what? And they were like, he's in the hole. And I'm like, crap, what? But like, because we have talked so much about like his growth and everything. And, you know, he has three years left and he was, he's like, I'm minding my P's and Q's. I'm going to keep my head down unless I have to like defend myself or something. He's like, I'm just going to slide by. So that way I can like, when my parole day comes, like I don't have to spend any more time here than I already have. And I'm like, yep, perfect. Good plan. Like, don't get into trouble. Like, I'll be so mad at you if you do. So then Friday morning, he calls me. And that was the last time that I talked to him on the phone was November 12th. And he called me and I was like, what the hell, babe? He's like, I swear I didn't do anything. And I was like, I believe you. And then he kind of told me the story of what happened. And I was like, I definitely believe you. So um, Thursday night, I guess a CEO walked by and said that she smelled marijuana coming from their cell, him and his cellmate's cell. Then they got drug tested and their room search. They didn't find anything in their room initially. And then on the drug test, they pop positive for hardcore drugs. They pop positive for meth, benzos, cocaine, and opioids. And I was like, that's insane because if you had literally had all those drugs in your system, I would know. Like we talk anywhere from three to five, if not more times a day. Like I would know if you were slurring your words or acted different or anything like that. And so he tells me this and I'm like, I know for sure you're innocent. Like I have no doubt in my heart that you are. So it's just been kind of a crazy ride from there. They've been in the hole since then. And then they found out that the UA cups were expired, (laughs) which is like, literally insane to me because it's like how do you in a sense like prisons are businesses like how are you going to run your business on expired anything hoping to achieve like a good business you know what I mean so that was just kind of frustrating and they used to have the policy where if you tested positive for any drugs then the incarcerated individual could like immediately ask for it to be sent into the lab for their testing. So once those drugs pop positive, by the way, no positive outcome for 
like THC, nothing pop positive on the drug test for THC, which is the whole reason that they got searched. Mm-hmm. And so Benjamin was like, this isn't right. Like, I want you to send that into the lab for further testing. And they were like, that's no longer a policy anymore. Like, we don't do that. And I'm like, how do you not get that appeal? Everybody in the world knows that there's such things as like false positives. Like, definitely could be that. So pretty much that was the last thing that was super communicated to me, everything else. So his phone got turned off, his emails got turned off. And then I think as of Wednesday, his letters got voided too. I don't think he can send any more letters out. So we have zero communication for 90 days because of this. And I'm pretty sure he's tried to appeal it because they came back and they said, oh yeah, well, even though the UA cups were expired, we found paraphernalia in your room, in the toilet. And then they realized that the unit that he was on is set up like a dorm. So they don't have toilets in their cells like a lot of the cells do. They have like a community bathroom area. And so they apparently changed the report from finding paraphernalia in the toilet to the trash can. And so I'm pretty sure he appealed it. I don't know for sure since we don't have any communication So the report's all over the place. And the last letter I got said that when he got his major report back, it said that he was positive for marijuana and paraphernalia in his cell. And so he has to do 90 days in the hole with zero communication. So that's kind of is kind of what's going on. (laughs) That is insane to me. You're right. I mean, this report's all over the place. The fact that those drug tests were faulty and expired would, to me, logically, would cancel all of that out. You would think, like, in the world here, it would just be thrown out. Right. And then somebody would get in trouble because somebody dropped the ball on ordering drug tests that are accurate and new, (laughs) you know, like, and then not only that, but it just seems crazy to me that all of that happened and they're not taking into consideration any of that. And they're still trying to find a way to keep Benjamin in the hole. Yeah. And his cellmate. So his cellmate also tested positive for all those drugs, no THC. And I don't really know exactly, you know, his side of of things or anything like that. But I know he did test positive for the same drugs. And, you know, there's just, to me, there's like little factors that to the wardens and the staff members, it's like, you see, first of all, you, you see him physically every day, like, and he's a pretty like charismatic guy. Like he had a job, he had multiple jobs in there. Like somebody, if he was really on all those drugs or even high, like, there would be some red flags, like for sure. And then like my other points are like, <laughs> and these aren't like valid points for like the prison system. Like, but for me, I'm like, he's been in prison for 14 years. If he were going to do something like that, like he's going to be smarter than to put paraphernalia in a trash can. <laughs> like, he, he would know how to dispose of something properly in there. You know what I mean? So for me to think that he had paraphernalia in the trash can is ludicrous. Like I can't 
And then the other thing that is crazy is that if you think that he tested positive for THC, but then it didn't, I mean, THC stays in your system for quite a while. Like just re re drug test them. It's easy as that. Like get non-expired cups and just test them again. So these are just like things that like, they're not taken in consideration. And I don't think they care to, you know, they did their job. They found them guilty and they, they had drugs in their system. They had paraphernalia in the trash can, apparently like case closed. Yeah. It's insane because it doesn't line up. I'm sure this happens all the time, unfortunately, right? Like you have a group of people that is already there. They're incarcerated. They're already, you know, judge and jury found them guilty. It is what it is. But my point is that they're constantly being pushed down. You know, let's just take Benjamin, for example, who has three years left. And, you know, he even told you, he's like, my plan is to keep my head down. I'm pushing forward. We've got plans when I get out. I'm getting out soon. And this time's going to go by fast. So I'm not going to do anything to screw this up. And yet, you know, despite good behavior, which I, I don't know him, but I'm assuming, you know, he's he's doing what, he, what he's told you he's going to do. Despite all of that, this happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's what's mind blowing to me is at first I was like, man, 90 days without talking to him, like so sad. But like, you know, even in the letters he's written me, he's like, I, he's been to the hole before, you know, previously. I think most people incarcerated one point in time have experienced that's just the way prison works, whether you do something to get there or not, you know, like Benjamin. But he's like, I, I'm in a better mindset being in the hole this time than when I was in the hole like four years ago, because I know where we're at with our relationship. Like I know that I'm innocent. Like, you know, he has kind of a better morale than, than usual. So at first I was like, man, 90 days, that's going to suck. But then I like, I'm like, this isn't about me. This is about him. And like here in three years, when he has the opportunity to see the parole board and they're going to look back and be like, well, three years ago, go, that wasn't too long ago and you found you were found guilty of whatever this report apparently says now like they're going to take that into consideration and that could really affect his parole here in three years which is going to be super crappy if that's the case you know like especially when he, he didn't do it you know we've been together almost six years we've talked almost every day there's been you know issues here and there that we haven't talked but more if I was traveling or something like that. I mean, I know him and his, even his sister, I talked to his sister and she's like, my brother is a lot of things, but there are two things he's not. And that is a hypocrite and a liar. I'm like, yes. Like if he did something, he's going to, he's going to own up to it. Like if he did that stuff, he'd been like, yep, babe, I messed up. I'm sorry. Like, what are we going to do? You know? Right. Well, you know, it it just shows how the prison world is so unlike what we experience in our everyday lives living on the outside. And it just shows the negativity, the oppression. It just it shows what what these incarcerated people have to go through on a daily basis, that it is a struggle, right? Even with the idea of keeping your head down, pushing forward, being on your best behavior and just doing the damn time so you can get out and live your life. It is just still like, there's not a a sense of fairness. There's not a sense of 
right and wrong here. You know, like just this whole story blows my mind because again, like, you know, a, a correction officer said that they smelled something. Okay, great. They went to check it out. Fair. Okay. Awesome. Whatever. They drug tested, you know, Benjamin and his cellmate. And then the tests were completely faulty. Like all of this is just so mind blowing, but yet there's still no justice. He's still being punished for something that he did not do. You know, even if they were like halfway and just be like, well, things came back kind of inconclusive, but you've already done a month in the hole. And so we'll just let you out. You've done your month or like, we'll just do another two weeks. We'll be done. But like the fact that you took 90 days away from them with zero communication is insane. Like, yeah, sure. If he did it, if other people did it, they need punished. I get that. But like 90 days in a hole with zero communication with loved ones that support you and you like rely on them to keep going and pushing through. That's just brutal punishment. That's not even like rehabilitation that prisons say that they want. You know what I mean? Like you're taking something away from them that is a positive in their life. Do something else. Like putting them in solitary, the whole isn't isn't productive to a punishment because there's some people that don't even care. Right. Well, and I struggle with the idea of solitary confinement because I mean, there's so many, you could read articles and reports and studies and all these things about people who are in solitary confinement and what it does to their mental health. It can trigger something. It can cause mental health issues that weren't even there to begin with for something like this. And you're right to take away the communication for 90 days is a long time. They're already incarcerated. They're already away from their family, their loved ones. And then you're taking that to another level. That to me just strips more of their humanity away. Is what Absolutely. I'm, you yeah. know, it's, it, it just doesn't add up. <laughs> no. So when he went to the hole, he went to the hole with his cellmate, of course, a lot of some solitary confinements that they're like, you're in your cell by yourself, you know, 23 hours a day or whatever. So the where he's on is, I think they're four-man cells. And so they're in their cell like 23 hours a day. And then I think they get to go outside for an hour maybe or shower, stuff like that. But they, in one of the letters he wrote me for... The first like two weeks, it was just him and his cellmate, which they've been cellmates for a while now. So another guy came to the hole and they put this guy, he's younger. He's like in his, like 23, I think Benjamin said, in the the cell with them. And I guess he had like put a piece of paper over the light, a dim it, or I don't know. I don't know why you would do that, but he put a piece of paper over the light and like a CEO walked by and was like, you need to take that down. All of you are getting like written up. And Ben's like, what? Like you put and like you put somebody in here with us that we don't know. And like, luckily the kid was like, no, that was me. Like, you know, he took ownership of it and stuff and was like, it was my, my doing. So the CEO wrote up the kid. And then I guess he like told Ben and his cellmate, like, oh yeah, when he leaves, I'm just going to put it back up. And Ben's like, I had to like turn up on him and be like, the hell you're not like we're not getting written up for something stupid like that like don't put a piece of paper up you know and it's just like they don't consider who they're putting together a lot of times he's already in a situation that he doesn't want to be in and now you throw another factor in like are you trying to cause problems I don't know I just felt bad for him because I'm like if you get another report 
because of somebody else again, like he's just like collateral damage, you know, he just keeps. And I think a lot of times, not just him, but a lot of people in there are, you know, you get mashed up with the wrong cellmate and you're just collateral damage if they don't behave. That's another interesting thing that I don't think about or I wouldn't have thought about before. It just really shows the flaws in our justice system. And and you said it earlier, we claim to rehabilitate, which I think is a joke, but we certainly don't. We certainly don't. It just blows my mind. And it makes me really upset because we were doing a disservice to our fellow Americans, our fellow people, and we're not we're not taking care of them. We're not getting to the root of the problem here. We're just punishing and punishing and doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, which is really the definition of insanity. I say this all the time and it is a hill that I will die upon. And we as a society need to do better with our incarcerated individuals because most of them are going to get out someday and they are going to be our neighbors, whether that's for a month or years. In reality, it's up to us to help them. Not even like intimately, like me and Benjamin or like you and your brother, you know, like loved ones. It's a society as a whole to like stop that stigma and stop thinking that everybody that goes to prison is bad. I just started at the public defender's office and some of our clients, I know that they've like committed crimes and stuff, but the way that they treat people is way better than like, I've also worked retail before and like some customers that I would have in retail, I'm like, you deserve life in prison. <laughs> like You are so rude. But then the clients at the public defender's office, they're like, I hope you have the most beautiful day. I hope your day is blessed. Like, thank you. That's very kind of you. I know that you just got a DUI, but wow, that was, you're so nice, you know? And it's just like, we just got to stop the stigma of like anybody who is charged of a crime is a bad person because they're going to be our neighbors someday, whether we like it or not. So we might as well help them. <laughs> I agree with you. I I could not have said that any better, really. I, I You're totally right. And it's kind of the idea of, you know, when somebody has a baby or, you know, have, somebody has kids, there's, there's that old saying that, you know, it takes a village, right? And it's, yes. you could kind of really, you could say that same thing with people who are incarcerated when they get out and it takes a village. And that's the thing is, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about American society and how we are compared to the rest of the world. And when I tend to travel outside of the U.S., I observe just behaviors and things and how other people in other countries treat each other or treat, you know, strangers. And doing that kind of thinking really just put in perspective of how individualist American society really is. And and it, I, it, it could be good to a point, right, when you're trying to, you know, grind, get ahead, do your thing, whatever. But really when it comes down to it, it is, it's kind of lonely. And we don't operate in the sense of community as other cultures do. And I wonder if we did lean into more of a community-centric, taking care of our neighbor, it takes a village type thing, if crime rates would then be lowered or um, recidivism rates would be lowered just because it's we're looking out for our fellow man instead of turning a blind eye like we tend to do. Yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think a lot of times that's just what 
people want is just somebody to listen to them. And, you know, a lot of people don't even look for handouts. They're just looking for a hand, you know, like my buddy has a job for you. Like, like if you want, I can talk to them or, you know, and I'm not even talking about incarcerated individuals. I'm just talking about people in general that might be struggling or something, you know, instead of being like, Oh my God, like, why can't he find a job or, you know, this and that it's just like, Hey, why don't you give recommendations? Like, I know it's not ideal, but, um, you know, I'm friends with the manager at McDonald's. Like I can get you a job flipping burgers until something better comes along. Like, where like, Hey, I, you know, you can stay with me for a month while you get up off your feet, you know, just, just little things like that, that I think people forget that they can do just to simply help someone. They don't have to give them money. They don't have to, you know, literally hold their hand and take them places. Like it's just listening to somebody and just giving them the right guidance a lot of times. And I don't think we as a society really like to do that. And I think anymore we're we're kind of taught to stay out of people's business too, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I I was having this conversation last night. I went to get together with some friends and and I so I, I mentioned before I live in Portland, Oregon, and we've we've been in the news a lot lately. And, you know, we've got our own stuff going on. But, you know, mm-hmm. my heart breaks for the city because we have such an influx of a uh, homeless population right now. And our, my city, my city officials are not doing jack shit about it. Yeah. And it's really frustrating. And I hear people kind of gripe and complain and say all these things. And I'm very empathetic. <laughs> and so my heart, every time I see somebody on the street, you know, my heart just, it breaks. And I think it's another example of, us not helping our neighbor, our fellow man. I don't pretend to have the answers. I don't, you know, Andrea, like I don't know what my solution yeah. is. However, I know that what is happening in my city right now can be fixed and there can be something done. And I just feel like, you know, people would much rather complain and gripe and step over somebody on the street rather than giving them that hand. Absolutely. And it, it breaks my heart. It, Yeah, it's super sad. And in my city here in Colorado. I live in Fort Collins. We do have a lot of homeless people. I think that they do a good job housing them or trying to find housing. Our homeless shelter is always bumping and you don't see too many people out on the streets. Now, Denver, of course, is a whole different situation, but I always keep in mind, um, I know this is a lot of times off of incarcerate or this subject off of incarceration, but a lot of people that are homeless, you know, commit crimes and they end up in the system, unfortunately. Like my uncle, he lives down in Kansas City and he was homeless for a very long time. And a lot more for homeless people because he did once have a home. He lived in this rundown apartment. It was, I thought it was super cool though, (laughs) like growing up. It was like a block off of the Kansas City Plaza. It was a really cool location, but the the apartment building itself was just really run down. So they tore it down and he had money from when my grandma passed away. He had some of the inheritance, but because he didn't have a job or an income, a lot of places, most places around there would not rent to him. So he was homeless for a long time. But my 
dad and my aunts and uncles did their best to help him out. Like I remember my dad telling me he gave my uncle an iPad so that way he could stay in touch with us, you know, on social media and stuff or, or FaceTime us and stuff. If he went to like a Starbucks or a McDonald's or something like that. And, you know, you see a lot of homeless people and they'll be like, oh, they have a iPhone, they're well off. And it's like, well, they could have got that secondhand. They could get that just so their family knows that they're safe and sound and not in a ditch somewhere. So luckily my uncle finally got some veteran housing and so he's doing pretty well. But you got to remember everybody's fighting their own battles. And I mean, I even do it sometimes. It's super hard not to judge. I think just as humans, we're programmed to do that. But whether it's like homeless people or incarcerated people, they're still people. They still have a story. They Somehow they got there and somehow they're just trying to do their best. Absolutely. I agree with you. I agree with you so much. And I always say that too. I always say you, you just, everybody has a story. You just don't know it. And and I, I always try to t- remind myself of that if I feel like those feelings of judgment pop up and you know, whatever, but I, my heart goes out and my heart breaks a lot of times. And when you're talking about a homeless population too, it's like, you said it yourself, the people, they, one mistake, one job loss, one little thing could happen. They're homeless or then they get put into a system and then it just, it's the cycle repeats itself constantly. And it's just, there's gotta be a different way. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I've gone through most of my questions for you. I was super, <laughs> I, this is great. I really wanted to touch on, you know, it's like, I, I, I had other, a few other questions here and there, but I really wanted to touch on your perspective and the story of Benjamin being inside, just because I think that's, that's just something different than my listeners would be used to uh, hearing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also, you know, hope that that can get the word out that that can, you know, maybe, you know, just change somebody's perspective on, on what goes on in, in our prisons. And it's yeah. just, it's fucking crazy. It, <laughs> I it, just, I'm it literally is. It, was, it literally is. And, you know, I even had talked to the warden and for, I mean, he was decent enough for being a warden, but you know, he was like, you know, we really do care about these people incarcerated, whether you believe it or not. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't really believe it. I I am very fortunate that there are probably two, maybe three staff members there that love Benjamin and know him because they've formed a relationship with him. They, you know, know his personality. They've gotten to know me through him, like when I come to visit and stuff. And I think for the most part, like they do a pretty good job of knowing him and his intentions and that like he's pedaled to the metal right now. Like he only has three more years left. And I really wish that they could like take their opinions of Benjamin and put that into consideration. Like one time I went to visit and one of the CEOs that we, she had told me, she was like, I know we're not supposed to have favorites in here. She's like, but Benjamin's one of my favorites. And I was like, I know he is. (laughs) He's my favorite too. I get it. So yeah. So I'm lucky that there are some staff members that are decent enough to him and kind of see him beyond being a felon. But most of them, they 
they don't care. They're just there to do their job and probably make themselves look good by putting them into the hole. Like, oh, look what I did. I'm so big, bad and fighting crime, even in prison, you know? And it's just like, no, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. The, the crime has been done. Like you're supposed to be helping re- rehabilitate these people, not finding them more reasons to stay there longer than they need to be. This episode was produced by Jason Sosoyev. And special thanks to Matthew Street for creating Penn's theme music. If you or someone you know has a story to share, please send me a note at pendpodcast.com. <laughs>